Hello, 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 and welcome into my humble opinion podcast. This is your girl, Chef Sharon, and I do not have my co-host with me today. Mr. Howard is on vacation, and he will hopefully he'll be back next week, maybe week after that. But um, we're going to go ahead and give you a great show today. I got my uh, one of my favorite co-hosts with me. We'll introduce him later. And Right now, we're just going to jump right into what they not talking about. And I'm going to keep this segment short and sweet because the, 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 um, the article I want to talk about today that I ran across, it is the cutest thing ever. It's these, um, I think it's four brothers, four brothers. Yeah. And they're all um, under 11 or 11 and under. And they have started a cookie empire and I think that is so dope. So the Billings the Billing uh, Billingsley boys, Joshua who is 11, Isaiah who is 9, Caleb who is 7 and Michael who is 5. They're better known as the Yummy Brothers. They started uh baking cookies. Basically, um they got their grandmother's recipe and they would share their cookies to different places and people just always thought they were yummy, so the name was a no-brainer. Um, when they, when they were coming up with the name, the, the four brothers got together and went to their dad and said they wanted to start a business. Well, you know, instead of their father underestimating them or, you know, pushing them away or say, well, maybe you guys need to get a little older. They actually sat down as a family and they, uh, put together a plan. They got the name, they got the logo, and now they are the yummy brothers and they sell, they have over, um, I think it was 36 variety of cookies. Yeah, 36 different types of cookies. And um, they sell their cookies on the weekend. Well, they ship their cookies out to people, actually. But they actually make them on the weekends because during the weekday, they are being students. They go to school, they do their homework, and they focus in on their grades. And on the weekend, they're able to... Um, you know, make their cookies and ship and everything. So the Yummy Brothers do ship nationwide. Um, and uh, like I said, they, they do that on the weekends. Let me see if I can get you guys a a link. It's the Yummy Brothers. So, okay, here's yummybrothers.com. Y-U-M-M-Y brothers.com. So you might want to go to that website, check these little babies out and see if you can order some cookies from them. Um... They, um, and uh, this is the coolest part of this with the profits that they have received from their cookie sales. They have started another business called Kidpreneur Expo, which allows other kids to start business. Um, so, you know, I think that's pretty dope, (laughs) you know, especially for them to be so young. They're already starting out, you know, being entrepreneurs, making their own way in life. These, these young men, have sold over 400,000 cookies, you know, so, you know, they've made a decent amount of money um, and I'm sure experience and knowledge. Just imagine if they're starting, they're not even 11. One of them is five years old. You know, one of the, the oldest one is 11. Just imagine how far these young men are going to be and how great their business sense is going to be by the time they're 21, by the time they're actually adult age. I think that is just the best story ever what they not talking about and I wanted to talk about it today so listen I'm about to take a brief break we just made um what they not talk about just a short and sweet segment today I don't have my co-host with me but I do have one of your guys favorite voices in the place and I'm gonna um bring him in when we come back from our break so hang in there with me I'll be right back Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Um, it was time for us to talk about it. So you, as you guys, I tell you earlier, my uh, co-host is not here today. He is on vacation. Mr. Howard's on vacation. So I am going to bring in one of my favorite co-hosts. Uh, he's no longer even a guest host. He's just one of my favorite co-hosts. Yes. I'm in the <laughs> rotation. Yes. You say what? I'm in the rotation. Yes. He's in <laughs> He's been the co-host rotation, Big Drew. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I should add in those special applause. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you should. Sound effects. <laughs> so um, what we talking about today, 
police shootings. We're talking yes. about what's going on in the news and how it's affecting. It's not in the news. It's what's going on in reality, what has always gone on um, during slavery, post-slavery. Um, it's always been an issue between law enforcement and people of color. Black people specifically today is who we're talking about, though. Yes. So today we want to talk about the shootings that have been, you know, well, what's been going on in the news now? For me, I was I was thinking, you know, I was like, should I do this subject? Should we talk about this? And then the thing was, should we? We can't stop talking about it because we become so desensitized. We be it's become the norm to the point when we hear it, it's like, yeah, man, did you hear that? Yeah, that's a shame. And then, yeah, so did you see the the new color Nikes is out? You know, and then we just go on and move on like it's nothing. And I think that we have to keep giving a voice to this until something changes. So you know, I was thinking, let's just. Let's just talk about it. Let's just talk yeah. about it from different angles, you know? Yeah. And I thought that you was one of the perfect guests to bring on a person to talk with me about it because of your experience with the police department, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I do feel like I, I tried my best to enter into a space with these subject matters uh, to separate myself from the norm. Um, and I'm not saying that to be facetious, but I felt like, Everybody has to find their lane in how to fight. And I think that's important is to not be apathetic because sometimes we can mistake talking about something as false motivation. And I I, I believe that each one of us has to find our unique way to fight against these injustices of the world. And um, and like you said, as we'll get into it, uh, I'll explain some of my reasons and some of the things that I've done down through the years and still do to try to fight against these injustices. Yeah. So, as you know, from before, we had a really intense conversation a little while back. I don't know if you remember with me um, just really expressing how I am afraid of the police. Yeah. And um, you were really I think you were. Well, you were very instrumental in changing my mind to a degree. You know, there's still I think a certain sense of fear that, you know, you just don't want to get in trouble with the police. But um with what's happening consistently and what we're seeing in the news, it's kind of hard for me not to continue to be a little afraid for my life and wonder, will I make it home to get when, when getting uh, pulled over by the police or coming in contact with the police on any level? So um, let's just jump in because we're going to talk about a couple of the you know incidents that have been heavy in the news over the past couple of weeks and but before we jump into that i wanted to or did you do you want to talk about those subjects and then we can jump into your experience with the police yeah, let's, or well, how let, do you want to do that i think let's pay respect to some of the things that have that, that took place over the last few okay. months or past few weeks really because i think one of the things that does happen in a typical media cycle and this is the thing I love about podcasts because we get a chance to archive our stories and our feelings and, and let our truth be told. Uh, the news cycle is not talking about this anymore. So I think it's responsible for us to say their names, make sure that people know that their lives mattered and, and their death affects us. Um, and it's real that it's not a political issue. It's, it, it's, a, it's a life and families that have been torn apart Um it, yeah, it's it's a lot to it. So yeah, let's get into talking about some of the the details of what what um, what's going on. Uh, starting with, we'll go back. Uh, let's just you know in, in Dallas, you know, yeah, we so talk, Amber. You want to talk about the uh, Amber Geiger case, which is sad yes, because exactly. we say her name more than the victim's name. Yeah, I was just about to say that. I was just about to say now we have to say um, Botham Jean. Yeah. We have to say his name. John, yeah. He was, was he, okay, so the story goes that, um, was he, he was home, right? Yeah, he was at home eating ice cream. His apartment. She accidentally came into, and not, well, this is the way it's being told, so I, I, I struggle with whether it was an accident or not, but um, <laughs> she she burst into the apartment assuming that it was, she was in her apartment and he was an intruder and the next door neighbor heard him cry out, don't. And so there was there was a, an audible witness to the fact that, you know, there was time for her to process that she may have made a mistake. 
uh, and that several mistakes had been made in order for her to enter the apartment. And um, still, she shot him dead in his apartment as he was eating a bowl of ice cream. And um, the neighbors, there were two key witnesses. One neighbor uh, adjacent to the apartment uh, began to video uh, her frantically pacing back and forth and repeating that she effed up. Um, she had made a phone call and was on the phone call, seemed very conversational, and then just continued to pace and say she effed up. She did not administer CPR, which is a training that she had as a police officer. She was well within her ability to potentially uh, save this man's life. So whether it was an accident as to why she shot him, why she killed him, is not what was up to is up for grabs. So even if we say she accidentally busted in the apartment, that's not what, what she was found guilty of. She was found guilty of failing to administer CPR when she was well within her means to do such a thing. Uh, it's the lack of value for his black life um, that was really and should really be what's on trial. And it is quantifiable. I know a lot of people listening to this could say, you know, we don't know if she thinks it's valuable or not. But I can I can tell you this. If, as long as we keep playing if, ands, or maybes, black lives won't matter. It will always be subjective. And there's more evidence to say that it's true that people don't value our lives. Um, so she didn't, she didn't do this. So one side note that I want to put about information with this story is that both the young lady who uh, recorded her pacing back and forth was fired uh, from her job and has had trouble finding another job and has uh, even faced eviction. And the gentleman who testified on the stand was uh, mysteriously murdered uh, a week after the uh, trial ended. And um, th they have not found, the Dallas police have not found his killer. So wow. this, this story has legs that, and it has a familiar tone and pattern that goes back to the stories that we've heard from uh, people who were championing the cause of, of ridding the world of Jim Crow. This is uh, people who stood up against injustice, what was mysteriously killed or disappeared or found hanging. And it's, this is, right. a, and this is a result, you know, this is what happens when you stand up for justice that you do have to think about these things. And, so the big injustice that other people also saw was that during the trial, um, the, the brother of the victim chose to forgive Amber Geiger the, uh, the, and once she was sentenced. And so I can say the murderer, um, and I don't have to say alleged, um, and he chose to forgive her and gave her a hug. Then the judge came, I went to her, retired to her quarters to find a Bible and came back and handed her a Bible and hugged her. Um, and that, yeah. sh that showing of sympathy has extended further to, um, to the point to, that her lawyer, and also, let me add this also in about information on this case. Um, also, the, they interviewed two of the jurors, and the jurors also felt very remorse, felt that she was very remorseful and that it seemed to have been an accidental killing. And they allowed that to, to sway them and, and in the way and how they delivered their verdict. And so with all those things being considered now, her lawyers are filing uh, the motion, a motion to have the sentence appealed to possibly get a lighter sentence. Um, and it's, it's, this is a common thing in the, in the criminal justice system. So I'm not going to say that this is an anomaly that she would do that because most good lawyers will file yes. an appeal to get you, uh, you know, less time, especially if you've never committed a crime, you have a good record. And especially if a lawyer has something in their back pocket, like the judge showing great sympathy and the family's victim, one one victim yes. showing, because he did not represent the entire family. Um, so these two things, the motion let may me, be. Let what, me unpack some of what you're saying. You just gave a whole mouthful of things that it's like, wow. Um, not to cut you out, but mm -hmm. I want to jump in there and kind of, the, oh gosh. Now, and I don't want to mm, see 
at the end of the day, this is a black and white issue. I'm sorry. And I know we have been so apologetic and trying not to play the race card. And But this is about Black Lives Matter. And this is about what if that was not a white woman's face in that courtroom? Yeah. Would it be different? You know, and, and the thing is, okay, now... I don't think I would have came off the stand and sit and hugged her and all that if she killed my brother. But that's my preference. And that's that man's preference to forgive. And I really don't have anything bad to say about him because he has to live with himself and he needs to do whatever helps him get through his brother's death. And if forgiveness helps him get through it, then, you know, all power to him. Uh, my thing is that I feel that it's very unprofessional of the judge to show that type of favoritism. This is a person who is being charged with murdering, taking the life of another individual. This is a person that was not just guilty of running into the wrong home and shooting somebody. But like you said, she was actually guilty of not administering life-saving procedure, you know, that could have saved that man's life, period. You know, um, so that in itself makes her a killer, and, and in my opinion, a cold-blooded killer. Because you're trained in these situations of how to save lives. You are, you're, you're under oath to save lives. And you didn't. Yeah. And so for the jury to have sympathy, why? And I wonder if me as a black woman stood there, police officer or not, in that same situation, would the jury look at me with such sympathy and remorse and feel like I had a remorseful heart or would I have to really pay for the crime that I committed fully, yeah. you know? And I think those, and, yeah, those, those uh -huh. questions will always be there for people of color. And I, and I know, you know, when you think about audience, if there's ever a chance that, and, and the people who listen to this show, if we ever have a, a, one of our friends who are white that's listening to this, this is what we're talking about when we talk about this lives, this, you know, our lives matter, that black lives matter is the factor that we we sit with the question that you just set with. We sit with this often. What I am, I allowed humanity. That, that's what you just said. You didn't say yeah. you, you were asked, am I allowed humanity? Am I allowed the things that most religious structures in this world are, are make a requirement internally. Our moral compasses always sway us toward, am I allowed grace, mercy, peace? Am I allowed any of these things that she was given? You, you, you are literally having to question your humanity because you're used to not to being denied that. Yes. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. This is not about, um, this is not about anything else. This is about us. You, 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 us saying these things is so that you can sit with it. And it's not for us to nurse you through it. It's for someone to be able to sit uncomfortably with the idea that, yo, like I have a group, there's a group of human beings that are being treated as though they're not. Well, you know, um, Chelsea was a Chelsea handler. She has yeah. that show and I know you've watched it, right? Yeah. The, um, um, privilege, uh, hello, privilege is it? Yeah, it's me, Chelsea. Um, and she talks about white privilege and she talks about dating a black guy and not even realizing now, now being older, looking back, you know, on the situation, she was doing just as much as he was doing or just as guilty, but she got sent home when he got arrested or he, you know, they get pulled over, they send her home. And it's like, why are you sending me home? You know, like she didn't get in the same type of trouble that her black boyfriend did, yeah. you know? And so we look at that favor or that um, privilege, you know? And so, and not to even minimize police shootings down to white privilege, you know, white privilege is one thing. And a lot of people that are shooting black people, a lot of cops that are shooting black people are white, but that doesn't speak as much to white privilege as how, I mean, it does to a degree, but blue privilege, like police officers will protect themselves at all costs. You know, that is a fraternity. Uh, in my opinion, it's like a game. 
and they're going to go for each other. They're going to go hard for each other, no matter how guilty they are. And that is the reason why so many officers can get away with murder and the good cops that we talk about, not all of them are bad, but how many of them are stopping the bad ones? How many of these so-called good cops are really making a stand for humanity and stopping these, you know, not like creating an environment where it's just not allowed. Yeah. So this is where I kind of chime in with my experience a little bit, because it's not that I'm going to give you pushback on what you just said, because perception is everything here. And I think people need to validate the perceptions of African-Americans and either help them walk away from them, you know, with truth or at least do something to to, you know, to help kill out whatever it is that they're 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 scared of or they're apprehensive of. And I think that's what we're talking about. Like with me, I heard that statement in my own mind so many times that the police are a gang. The police are against us in the community. The police aren't this, the police are that and, and I know no police officers. And it's like how do I have so so well informed statements just based off of what I've been fed and not off of my personal experience. And me, and this is just my personality type, I don't believe in that form of prejudice. Like, I don't believe that I have a right to speak into something that I don't know about. And so for me, I went into going into police chaplaincy to spend more time with officers to figure out what is the deal? What makes a good officer tick? What makes a bad officer tick? Um, But then I also, the other thing is, and that was internally, that was me feeling like, okay, I'm going to, and as a pastor, I felt like I'm going to bring them Jesus, right? Uh, My other method, uh, the other method to my madness was there was a guy, and I don't think he's in this position anymore, but I'm not going to say his name. There was a guy in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was usually the, he was the lead detective and he usually showed up on the scene of crimes. And I remember seeing him speak on the news and you could see in his eyes that he was dead. Like you could see that he had seen so much that he was desensitized. And this is the man who shows up to tell you your your child is dead unless a chaplain shows up to do it in his place. And I start thinking about all these brown bodies, all these black people who are losing and, and Hispanic people and, and, and even white people in the hood, like all these people who are losing their lives in North Tulsa. And he's the one who is showing up. And it's just and then he's on to the next one. But I knew that I had the capacity to do something hard and sit with the family And I'd rather me be there two o'clock in the morning showing them real actual love than this guy who, for whatever reasons, because he's overworked and all these other things, be unsympathetic. And that speaks to the greater narrative that I kind of want to say when I say there is some pushback in my mind with our perceptions of officers is that we don't look at how undermanned they are. And sometimes we don't look at how the bad officer creates a dynamic between a person who's had no interaction with another person. So the bad officer dehumanizes the good officer. And when you talk about the officer himself, he's still a human and I show up to work and this bad officer treats me like I'm a human. I don't know he's a bad officer. That's one from the get go. Nobody knows, Hey, Johnson's crooked. Johnson's a racist. No one knows that when they walk into the precinct. So you're a rookie. You go out on the streets. You're treated subhuman. You show up. You're trying to be the good guy. People are cussing you out. People are mad at you. You're the bad guy off top. Because negative stereotypes continue to perpetuate like this whole the, the police are against us. And to some degree, yes, I know they are systematically. But you as an individual, you get held accountable to the system. Johnson, on the other hand, who is racist and probably just a horrible person, treats you like a whole man. He treats you like a whole person. He treats you like your family. He treats you with some a level of respect. He teaches you how to survive. You end up adapting that because your life as an officer is all about surviving. It's all about, I got to get home to my family because you aren't just patrolling just for the sake of patrolling. You're actually putting your life on the line every yeah, single yeah. day. And you're hoping to get home and not actually sacrifice your life for someone else. Um, okay, so ahead. listen, and I, I hear you, I do, and 
it would be easy for us to see that point of view. And if, if, if we weren't so roughhoused and talked to so horribly by them mm-hmm. and, and treated so inhumane and degraded, I remember having encounter with the police in my, was I 19, 20? Mm-hmm. You know the situation. Yeah. <laughs> I was talked to so horribly and, tr- and I didn't do anything. You know, and they'll come to your house if they're called out and, and, you know, just growing up in hood, you see it. You see it. The police have to get called at certain times and they come in like you just broke them out of their best nap that they was dreaming about donuts or coffee or something, mm-hmm. you know, and they come in mad. They come in angry, come in your house and you don't get to talk and you have to obey them. You know, and it's it's really just the way they treat you like like you are subhuman. And and so it's not like we go in going off and cussing them out. You know what I'm saying? But I have watched them. I watched video where people of certain other races will have a gun in the street, a big old machete knife swinging at officers and they leave the scene with their life. They get subdued somehow by the police, but they're taken safely and alive to the precinct. We don't get, Tamir Rice didn't get that opportunity. He was a baby. And so it gets hard for us to consider them getting home to their people when we're so afraid that we're not going to make it home. It's a chance that we're not armed and dangerous. They're always armed and dangerous. And that, and that speaks to this point that it does not, once again, everything I say has nothing to do with dismissing behavior. And, and that's one of the sad narratives that I have to go through because people, when you try to talk about the police, unless you're in alignment with most people's belief with it, you have to always apologize or explain why you're saying something. Um, but one of the points that I love to always make to people, and I learned this from a cop, um, actually post working around the police, uh, ironically here, I did some work with around police and with recording, uh, with my videography company where I recorded some plays about the police. And one of the, uh, cops wrote this line where he was basically this whole narrative about how, why would you call someone with a gun to your house? And not, and I'm not saying people don't, so listen, so here's the big point that like I got from that. Y- you two are in a fight. You call the you call the police on your boyfriend or girlfriend. You call the person to a gun with a gun to a marital issue. And this person is not mentally prepared. He's not a or he or she is not a marriage counselor. They are trained for combat. They're trained for extreme situations. They're not experienced. They're not trained for the middle ground. And that's the, that's the, I, I like to use that point to further the narrative of like, let's really talk about the real subject matter here. The real subject matter here is that we need to start talking about police training as a whole, because we are sending, we are sending people with guns into domestic disputes that didn't have guns. And so, he, so when, yeah, because here's the thing, and we don't complain about this often. There are times when the police are sent with their guns into disputes where other people had guns and the result ended up the police killed out the danger, you know, whatnot, and no one had a complaint. You know, so we have to figure a way to train the police and then retrain the community on our expectations of what the police are going to do, which because that also bleeds into the story of the next door neighbor who yes, called in on Miss Jefferson. Right there. You know, he thought <laughs> it's a burglary. Possibly this cop should show up and not be on 100. But his training which he skipped several important parts of his training by not announcing himself, but his yeah, training. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you know the process of a wellness check? And, and can you walk us it, through so, 
just a normal process of a wellness check. So I'm going to give you an actual story of a wellness check that I did, not as a police chaplain, but as a person who did what was called search and rescue, where I would go after homeless people, drug addicts, different people. So there was a guy who had spent months in my recovery program and he relapsed. And everyone in the neighborhood was concerned about him. And they called me personally and it was like, hey, you're the only one that could probably get him out that house. I called the police for a wellness check because I'm like, yo, I can see his body in there because I could creep in just enough. I could see enough in the window to see that he was passed out drunk and had been like that in that same position for 24 hours. The cop said, I can't enter the home. I said, you see him there. Law said they could not enter the home. The cop, being a good cop, said, I'm going to turn my back. And if this door gets kicked in, the door just gets kicked in. Or if that window gets busted, that window gets busted. And then I, then I can come in. I had to kick in the door in order to save my friend's life. Because the cops said, I can't do it legally because then they could sue us for breaking the door or whatever. I just got here and the door is open. Everything's good. That's the best wellness check I ever had. Other well, but, but for the most part, the only thing he could do was walk around the perimeter, announce himself, which he did during that wellness check before he engaged me. He walked around the perimeter, announced himself, knocked on the door, no answer. That's all a wellness check can be. You're not supposed to enter the premises without permission. Even during a wellness check, all you have, the only right you have is to look around, at least from the training in the city I was in. You can look in the windows, you can try to see some things, but you can't enter, you still can't actually enter the premises without permission. And so, but there's the announcement part. I don't care what city you're in, I'm pretty sure that's 100% a part of the process. You have to announce that you're on the property. You have to even add, because it's a wellness check. You give that person a chance to verbally respond to you and they can send you away. They can say, I'm fine, go away. And that officer has to go away. So what do you think happened in the case of a Tatiana Jefferson? Bad policing. And, and it's not to dismiss racism, right? Race. This is where racism, systematic racism plays a part. This officer is assigned in the hood. This officer is assigned in a neighborhood that is predominantly black. He is paranoid. He's going into the situation assuming that there is a crime taking place because God bless this neighbor who was just checked, who wanted to do well. He assumed because the neighbor had every right to assume because the neighbor's like, something yeah. is going on. It's an anomaly. This is a, a, an odd situation. So the officer picks up on that same thing and he says, OK, must be something going wrong. And he goes in extra paranoid. And now as the as we've gotten more information and here's the thing, and this is just me on some conspiracy theory stuff. I don't buy the extra explanation we get. Let, let's just put that out there as black people. We don't believe you when they say that she had a gun in her hand. We don't believe you. But even if she did have a gun in her hand, um, which is is, is her son or, or not son, but her nephew, you know, even gives credit to that and says, but I still, there's still a part of me that's, that's just me. I'm just skeptical. But she had every right to have a firearm because she heard someone creeping around her house unannounced. Right, exactly. And so the three seconds that, you know, four seconds, five, I've heard everything between three and five seconds. Let's just stretch it to the truth, you know, or uh, to a place that even if it was the truth, it's still ridiculous. We got eight seconds. Let's just say it was eight seconds. Eight seconds to get your hands down is not, to me, is not long enough. Eight seconds is not, you know, so, but it was five seconds at the, you know, from all media reports, five seconds. She didn't get her hands down quick enough and she lost her life. He was scared and he was scared because systematic racism has, has taught him that he has a reason to fear us. He has a reason to fear neighborhoods that we dwell in. He has a reason to be scared of us and and the factor that he signs up to police us, he didn't sign up to preserve and protect now, us. He signed up to let's police talk about us. That. <clears throat> let's talk about signing up to police neighborhoods you know nothing about. What is the neighborhood obligation? What is, and I'm, I'm asking that question as if I don't have an answer, but not just the police obligation, but the neighborhood obligation. I feel that it should be a shift in... Um, how police are assigned. I think there should be 
um, community gatherings. I think we should know the police that are assigned in our areas. I think we should I think the officer should go to the schools. Like if you police this jurisdiction, you should have visited every high school, um, been in assembly, got to shake hands, meet, meet all the kids that you could potentially kill, you know, elementary students. I think that they should know your face and be able to trust you. I think it wouldn't hurt for the precincts to have barbecues every now and then and invite the neighborhood out. I don't think it's anything wrong with like um, the church I used to go to in Kansas City. They decided when all those um, it was like a bunch of shootings that had, had happened, huge uproar uh, a couple of summers ago. And they implemented a program, which they still do today, where they decided to go to the precinct that was right in their neighborhood, in the church's neighborhood, and meet the officers, pray with them. And so they weekly, they go up, they bring donuts, they pray with the officers, and they've invited the officers out to church. The officers know these people in this church. The church knows these officers. But I don't know how much that they've, you know, filtrated into the neighborhood because of this program. Right. But... I feel that these are the things we need to start doing because you will be less likely to kill a kid or to even think that a child is dangerous if you know their face. So what you're talking about is called community policing. Now, community policing, we in order for community policing to become a reality, three things have to happen. And this is on multiple people's parts. So let's start with the community. The community's part in order to allow community policing to happen is we have to change the narrative on what we say to our children about police. Mm -hmm. So we have to almost make our children want to be, we want to allow our children to want to be police officers again. Right. Uh So that's the first part because we have to ease the tension. And from that standpoint, which is very a vulnerable thing to do if the other two parts don't happen Uh, for City officials, government has to open up funding and they have to lower standards or adjust standards for policing uh, to be able to provide jobs, more police. You can be. So, for example, Tulsa has two. I think they've expanded to two. But under like when I was there, they had just started with one community police officer. And he was a gentleman who did it excellent because he worked with me with the homeless. And I went on several ride alongs with this guy and officer uh, Popsy Floyd was like the greatest at community policing. And he did it before it became a position. And then he started doing just that position. And so and when he did it, he had to go to South Tulsa to do it. And he was no longer really like he was still in North Tulsa off of his own strength and power as a good man. But he it kind of eliminated him. So point is, community policing only comes about you're talking as financial structures in place because you're taking a cop or two off the street during time. So, for example, most cities are under police. So that what happens is when your house gets broken into, they can't if they're having a barbecue, they can't come to your house. They have to be on the streets because there's maybe two officers for every, you know, you know, if you look at, you say, all right, this is the north side of town. And this is your average American city, not a large metropolitan city like Atlanta, but like your average Midwestern city. You got your north side of town, right? You've got four officers. You may have eight officers assigned to the whole north side of town, each one taking their own individual quadrant. So there might be two on the east, northeast, two on the northwest, two, you know, you see what I'm saying? to south, to east, but it's still north. You know, so like they just still divided up by the four directions and put two mm-hmm. officers on each side. That's a lot to cover. And there's a lot actually going on. And then some things happen where all of a sudden there's bigger emergencies. There's a homicide. There's something else. And then you think about when a cop gets pulled over, safety protocol says, and it's for your safety supposedly too, that, okay, now they got to show up with two people. And that's another person off the street. Then they have to do 30 to 45 minutes worth of paperwork. But every time that they respond to a scene, they still have to do the paperwork. And if they take a person in, if you actually take a person in, you have to take them to booking. And then you have to do all the paperwork to process booking them in. And then you have to go file whatever evidence that you may have. 
And so you arresting so one person for a bag of weed may take you off the streets for two hours of your 12 hour shift. So community, well, you have off time, right? Like, are you working 24 hours a day, seven well, days a week? Let me or ask you, you what do you like normal people? Let me, do you want to do, what do you want to do on your off day? I understand what you're saying, but how many times have we had off days that we worked overtime? So or we had to do a special meeting and had to come in on our off day. It, you know, I mean, and, and it, every it, time we, I have lives here, we talking about lives well, mattering. So what happens is you should work eight hours a day as a normal human, right? That's or not human, but in America, you should work eight hours a day. Because they're under man, they're working 12 hours. They're covering more time than they normally would. And then so when it comes to working four 12s, you end up, you end up in this position where you're saying, okay, so, and, 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 and once again, this is skewed. Not every city is under man, but most cities are under man because of the conversation that we're talking about where it then falls on the government, to the local government to change those standards to actually say, okay, we're not going to, um, we're not I mean, going to say you have, have to have, have a, a certain four. amount of training hours, don't they? They have well, to no, have a certain. It's not even about if the it's, train. Hold on, it's not. They, hold on, it's, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying training hours. In most cases, you a lot of cities you have to have a four year degree, or at least an associate's degree. That's what I'm talking about. The requirements to be a cop, meaning before we get to training. They want you to have some sort of degree in order to do it. Four-year degree shouldn't have anything to do with whether you want a police or not. But most cities pick up on have those type of requirements. Okay, so, so then that puts them in under because a lot of people don't have four-year degrees. And think about the, the demographic. Four-year degree. And then, and then listen, think about the demographic of what person. What I'm you saying could. is that once you qualify to be a police officer, I'm trying to come to because if and, and I hear what you're saying. What you're saying makes plenty of sense. But what you're saying. If if left right there, that is the problem. We there's got to be some type of bend for a solution, because if you are newly assigned to this area, who was working it before you? Can they keep working it while you get to know the people? Like, can yeah, we that implement is what that some is what type of? programming before you hit the streets yeah so adding to the training a community element would be nice but what happens is if you are if you already have guys working 16 12 and 16 hours you don't have time to say you need to spend two months in the community you just don't and it's the reality um you're trying to get bodies in in cars yeah so that you then because you your hope is if i can retain more officers then eventually the officers can do more community policing. I worked with a cop who was a really good cop and he was under man. Like he worked a whole area of town. Like I'm talking a 10 mile radius by himself. And he still would get out and pass out stickers to kids and still would pass out gum. And sometimes would go buy stuff out of his own pocket to take care of kids in his neighborhood. He was a good cop. But on the same token, he was loyal to being a cop because he knew that some of those kids would forget about the stickers and the bubble gum because he knew that they're hearing a whole nother narrative about him. And he mm-hmm. knew that he knows at the end of the day, he, there is a they need to be somewhat of a band of brothers because every now and again, we do forget that there are some negative narratives out there. Like there are some negative things. Some, it's plenty. <laughs> and this is the thing. I don't think we just decided one day to get up and not like the cops. I know for a fact the black community didn't didn't do that. Basic, every one of the ideas that we have about the police was given to us by police action, by you know, from Rodney King. Let's no, Rodney King is not the beginning. Let's go back. If you watch old Richard Pryor comedy, he's talking about police brutality. If you go back as far as you can go back, we've been talking about police brutality mm-hmm. from the beginning. So it's 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 always been a them against us situation. Yeah. It was a lot less crucial than now because we did have Officer Friendly who somehow found the time to come to our school. 
And that's where the idea came to me because I was not afraid of the police. And a lot of my friends wanted to become police officers when we were kids because police officers would pull up in their car and give out baseball cards and guns. And they, you know, would come to our schools and, and their name was Officer Friendly. And we weren't scared of the police. Yeah, but why that, is it that kids now will scream and cry when they see the police, well, like in real detrimental fear? Because and Pat, where did yeah. that fear come from? And, and Something they saw the police do. I'll put you like this: it's a generational thing. Because yeah, cops went on in the eighties; they passed out baseball cards, but it didn't stop. It did not stop the crack epidemic. For every kid that got a baseball card, that liked the police. They also got fronted into the dope game and knew that they had to do this to survive. And then they became intentional enemies. And this isn't a black or white thing because it's no, whites and Latinos and everyone else. At some point, regardless of how friendly the police are to you, you once you become an actual criminal, you do become the enemy of the police. And then once you're but you're still a human, you still have kids, you still have family members. And people tend to forget that element. One of the first men who lost his life to the police uh, in recent history where they made news and uh, was actually a drug dealer and was actually doing something wrong. He did not deserve to lose his life. And people dismissed every element of his case. And he never got justice, in my opinion, because people stopped at, well, he was a drug dealer. Of course, he deserves to die. And um, he was the enemy of the police. You know, either he was going to kill them or they were going to kill, you know, they were some, you know, better him than the cop. And I think we have to start telling our stories better. We have to start being on top of the narrative of saying, of finding out what's really going on and not reading the headlines, but reading the whole story and then not trusting the story, but then hearing from the family. Like, why was this guy running? Like, what was he taught all these years? What did he experience? Because it is important that we know the truth behind all the situations and figure it before we rush to judgment. Like, for example, in this, this is kind of we, it bouncing all the way back to the story we opened up talking about the media rush. Uh, and I would say black Twitter, you know, and the media helped perpetuate this rush to judgment. People who had never really paid attention to the fact that when you go into court and you have hair, actually, if you go into the the airport, which I saw, if you have a large amount of hair, they check your hair. The bailiff checks your hair in court. It is a common thing. And they turned it into uh, Amber Geiger was, was had her hair adjusted and, and rubbed down by the bailiff. And the bailiff was like, no, nah, I, I wasn't messing with her like that. I, my job is to check her hair after she sits back down because people bring in weapons. That's a rule that's set up strictly for black people with thick hair. She did it on Amber Geiger, but the, but, People's attention turned to, oh, you baby and you know, you, yeah, I was babying this white woman when she was just actually upholding the law. I'll use that story just as an example to say we yeah. need to not rush to judgment sometime and, yeah. and tell the story amongst each other. Not a, I don't care about what the media gets because they're never going to report our stories. But what we tell our kids, that's what I mean by like there's our part as we play a part in how we change the narrative of how our children feel about the police and how they, because my line with me saying I became a police chaplain, it doesn't stop that I have a, a, a child who drives. I have a, a young black man who drives and he lives in predominantly white spaces and he's highly educated and he's very articulate and there's no way in the world that, like I, I don't even live in a space where I should be that paranoid. But because I, I live in a space that's predominantly white, my paranoia is up times 10. If we still lived in North Tulsa, I would have no problems with Navon driving. But every time he leaves the house in, in the state of Washington, I live in a perpetual state of just like, whoa, like, will he? I thank God every time he walks back in the house just fine. I'm not okay with this narrative. But I also yeah. teach my children... And I teach everyone else that like, we've got to do something to change it. Because here's the thing. I've just said for the last 10, 15 minutes, how cops are overworked. I'm not an advocate for the police. They have their own advocates. I'm an advocate for black people. I want us to learn how to speak 
truth into these situations and understand it. If you're looking in the eyes of somebody who's under who's overworked and they are scared, that changes. If you told me I was well, going in the ring with a starving pit bull, I'm going to change my game plan. I'm not going to go up to right. it and try to pet it. <laughs> but we've got to be realistic about what we up against so that we can survive. But if we keep trying to paint a fairy tale and say that they got to fulfill it, it ain't going to happen. Their well, ears are not open to hear us. We've well, got to change thing, our narrative. What we need to do, you know, because one of my suggestions was the community policing thing. The other thing is more of us should become cops. Yes, and that's it. The, th- the right thing there. is, is that more of us need to be cops. So I was talking to a lady today. I was out at that festival and I was talking to a lady today and you're basically talking about what the podcast is going to be about today. And she said something. She said, I'm scared of the police. I don't like them. She said, I don't like no police. She said, I got a cousin that's a police and I don't fool with them. Right. I don't fool with the police. And I'm just like, that right there, that attitude, that that tone, that is gonna rest, that's gonna pass on to her kids. And and they're gonna have that same attitude and feeling. And at the at the end of the day, with all what the media's feeding us, with what we're feeding each other, and our, we will never become the cops. Anytime your family don't fool with you because you the cops, because you the police, mm. then how many people are eager to become the police? Trying, I've been you know, I've been spit on. I've been cussed out. I've had rocks thrown at me. I've, and I was there for them. I've, I've had people in the worst places of their life, and I could have gave them some comfort, cuss me out because they thought I was with the police. This runs to the point where it's, it's again, it runs again, it, you know, like it runs against us. When we yeah. fill ourselves with the same hate, like that hate that, that, that causes a person to kill someone or let a person die out and bleed out because you're more scared about yourself and you don't value a black life, that birth from hate. And I don't want us to be infected with that same hate because power, the pendulum of power, is, it shifts and it always has moved throughout society. And what we do when we're, when we're not in a situation of power, we don't feel like we're seated there we don't recognize it because I believe we have more power than we. Yeah, than I was we, just. I, it's funny you should say so, power because she said, "So black people don't have power." We. I said, "No, we have plenty of power. We're focusing our attention and our power in the wrong places." I don't want to continue. We have plenty of power. We don't use it in the right way. Yeah, we need you to. Continue. We we're not, and this is why I keep saying the word narrative because at this point. The biggest thing that I feel for African-Americans is blacks, because this is specific to blacks. Like, and I'm being very clear about this in this in the conversation. And it's not to disclude our African friends. It's not to disclude Hispanics who are going through the same thing. But today I can only speak to the community that I love and I'm in and I'm a part of and I fight for and I die for, I live for and will die for. When it boils down to it, we have the power of telling the story and how we tell the story. It, it, it equates to a value that we don't recognize yet. I've said this multiple times. Money now is not the gold standard. It's the data standard. Every data point that's attached to you, all the social media that you're on, all the things that you do. If you fill those spaces with a story, all of a sudden you become more powerful. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, are hashtags that are million dollar, like multi-million dollar, just movements. Billion dollar movements when you really think about the Me Too movement and how much money it shifted and how it has opened up doors and has changed the narrative on what's happening to women in general. You see, we're great. We, we are a lot greater and we wield more power than we think. Those are two hashtags started by black women. Black women have changed the narrative. It's about how we use, we have to use our voice the right way. And we can't rely on broken systems of religion. We cannot. And I'm a pastor telling you this. The systems of colonized gospel is not going to save you. It's okay to be forgiven. It's okay to hug, but it's also okay to hold people accountable for what they're doing and let them sit uncomfortable in the mess that they make 
It's okay for you to fight for who you are and, and, and tell the stories better. Tell the story different. Stop telling the story from a point of view that you're a victim. Yes, the police system is, you know what? You got, you had to catch a runaway slave. It's a commodity. It was a, it was a, you were a, a P, we were pieces of meat. Like we were no more than stock. If your sheep runs away, you go and you get your sheep. But we were humans. So you had to have policing. You had to have someone that was willing to go and get the runaway slave so you wouldn't lose money. And that just parlayed into police systems. You had to find, with, with, with Jim Crow and with segregation, you had to find a way to keep the Negro on their end of town. You had to way to, you had to have militias in place secretly so that you can massacre, you know, you can orchestrate a massacre like they did in 1921. Yeah. These, this is why the police system, they were birthed out of that, but they don't have to stay there. We have the power and the ability to shift it. If we raise our children to change the stories, if we raise our children to care on a deeper level and to actually not be scared to go against the grain, it takes everything in you to go against the grain. And yeah, you're going to get spit on. You're going to get cussed out. You're going to be called a bunch of different things. But if you do it because you really love your people and you really love your community, the narrative will change. And that's the, that's the point that I want us to understand. There's power in our tongue, if nothing else. They're telling us there's no power in our money, but that's bullcrap too. I just, <laughs> I just spent a whole week in a money summit where all we talked about was how social entrepreneur, uh, social entrepreneurship is the biggest branch of money. And it's always been a part of the fivefold of why you invest. Like if this company gives out to its investors, if it gives out to its employees and to the society that it affects its community. And now everyone's focusing in on this. We're in a season where money is about to start flowing through our community these billionaires, these philanthropists are needing some place to spend their money in order for them to make more money. Empowering us, we have to be able to have a plan on how we're going to captivate and change the narrative because the society that exists now, it's eroding. White men being in power, positions of power is expiring and they know it. And so they're jumping on board with us. But we've got to be able to be prepared to tell our stories. And that's a whole nother show. But it does relate yeah. to this policing thing. It does. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's a hard subject to talk about because at the, even at the end of this conversation, nothing's right. changed. You know, like we've had a conversation about it, and I'm hoping people hear this and pass it along and share it, and more conversations start being had, not just amongst ourselves, but amongst like. I want a police officer to get a hold of this and hear it from just a raw, from just a regular person, black person's point of view. You know, what we go through, the way we see it, you know, we don't want to die and we don't want y'all to die. We yeah. just want to make it from A to B. When I leave my house, I want to be able to come back to it. Or if I need to call you to my house, I need to know I'm not going to die. If I call you to my neighbor's house, I need to know that they're not going to die just because I call you know, and so, you know, we're doing things to try to change our narrative. Miss 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 Jefferson was in what was she in medical school or something? I seen a video of her uh, doing showing the body parts. She had a skeleton, and she was naming the different parts of it. I know she you was know, a college graduate. Was, yeah, yeah, she was educating herself. She was educated, you know, trying to do better things for her life. And she ended up dead for no reason. And that's the thing that's got to change because we can do our part. But if our police officers are not trained in, in, in just, you know, basic humanity, that everything is not a war zone, that you are not in the military, that you are not overseas somewhere in the middle of wartime, you're in a neighborhood with real people, with real heartbeats, you know? And, yeah. and these people... They want to be here tomorrow and they deserve to be here tomorrow. And it's not your right to just take their life because I was scared. You know, and the reason yeah. why I say that is because, like I said, I've seen multiple videos of other people who are doing way worse than we ever could do, but they make it out alive. So to me, I feel like the police have ways to subdue threats if, if there is an actual threat. 
without taking a life. So without getting back further into the conversation, this is rounding it up. Yeah. You know, I think I'm walking away with the same feeling I came in with, just to be honest with you, Mm -hmm. this conversation hasn't changed anything. And that was the thing. Do we keep talking? Do we keep talking about it amongst ourselves? Or do we start talking to them? Do we make them start having those conversations? Like, what is our next move? What is our responsibility in this? Because we can post all day on Facebook and Instagram and talk about it until it fades out. Nobody's talking about it this week. Matter of fact, when I went to go look up Miss Jefferson's story, they talking about how her her, uh, dad stopped the funeral. I had to dig hard to find the actual story, and I found nothing on the police officer whatsoever and what was going on with him. I, think, I just heard, yeah. I think somebody else was talking about it and I got some information. But as far as looking it up, the only thing they're talking about is the father stopped the funeral and the family conflict with that. They weren't even focused on the real issue. Yeah. And I think that's the reason why it, this may, and for me to, and this will be my last statement, and I'm going to answer your question. I believe that we do keep talking, but I think we need to learn how to put, um, and, and, it, and this may sound unfortunate, unfortunate that we have to speak their language in order to be heard, but I think we have to quantify our, our statements. These conversations are good on podcasts because you can monetize a podcast, and that means there's money behind what you just said. The conversation that says that, that ends with you saying, what's next, is good as long as the next conversation that we have is what's next. I love that you spent a, 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 a bunch of time in this podcast talking about community policing and how you think that would help. That's an important narrative. I gave a counter to it, but I still want that and we still need that. So I think that's what's important is to keep throwing out the conversation, but don't keep it amongst yourself. Put it in your podcast, put it in your blog, put it, uh, you know, email it to city hall Email it to your police chief. Tell people when you've got an idea, put it in front of the people. Create you a hashtag that, that's when you want to talk about this. Create that hashtag, we need community policing. Hashtag community police, whatever it is, because make it quantifiable. Make it count and put something behind it that makes people want to pay attention because you never know what's going to hit and what's not. But you, we, we do know. That if you just talk and you keep your anger in and you keep all of this frustration in and you only internalize it and we only have this conversation, um, I think we don't go anywhere. So community leaders, pastors, especially in the black church, uh, in the black communities, not so much black church, but the black community, we got to step up. It's time to step up and start having these officers come and have these conversations, having these officers come and have these conversations with us. And we need to start inviting them in whether they want to or not. And we need to start demanding justice and not just accepting uh, whatever it is they want to give us. We need to start demanding justice um, and making our voice be heard in these digital platforms. And um, my big thing, like I said, I always say hate can't drive out hate. So as a community and as a people, we just got to do everything that we can not because hate is contagious and we just can't we can't let that be our narrative. We have to let a narrative of love that for one another. I'm not talking about them. I'm not fascinated with cops in this conversation. I'm not fascinated with white people in this conversation. I'm not fascinated with anyone who, who's opposed to whether they're black or white. I'm only talking to the people who know how we feel. Because I've talked to you. I've, I've, I've had tears in my eyes having to look at a mother and tell her that the police just killed her son. And very rarely have people ever had to do that. So I know I stand in a unique group of people and I see her eyes. I see her eyes now as I mention it. I see her eyes sometimes at night because it's real. Yeah. And so, but I'd rather live with this because it gives me passion. It gives me drive and it allows me to go to the next level and to stop just talking. The talks are good but let's put something behind it. But when you put something behind it, there's going to be a price to pay. You're going to see some eyes at night. And you're going to be all right. You're going to see some eyes when you're too tired. 
and they're going to push you to keep going. So just join the fight. That's all I can ask. Well, with that being said, thank you. I think that you were definitely the per- perfect co-host for me today for this subject because I did feel a lot of uh, passion for it. And I think you met me right where I was at with it and even more and with your experience and uh, knowledge on the subject and in the cases also um, having so much information um, you were just the perfect person to have this talk with. So thanks again for once again joining me and rescuing me <laughs> so that I can have a good uh, co-host. So um, we're just going to wrap this up now. So thanks for uh, joining me once again. And with my humble opinion podcast, if you guys want to um, go to the the Facebook page and join so you can keep up on what we go, what we have going on. Um, that's uh, my humble opinion podcast on Facebook. You can go in and like and even comment. Um, you and also whatever shows posted, you can just click the links, listen to some of the old shows, and you can check us out on. Of course, we're on Anchor, uh, Spotify, uh, 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 Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, several other podcasts. You know, so wherever you listen to your podcast, at we're probably there. So check us out. And thank you for joining me. Everybody have a great one. I'll talk to y'all next week.